Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. You see all throughout these chapters, Mark's of renewal. And earlier when we read from chapter 8, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law. Notice what it says. All the people gathered, and they asked Ezra to bring the book of the law out. Who was the one who initiated the rehabilitation and the longing to rediscover God's word? Was it Ezra, or was it the people? It was the people. The first mark of renewal in any community, pins ready, is that it is marked by an activated laity and clergy. Laity and clergy. The word laity just means of the people. It means the people and the priests, the people and the pastor, they both were activated. Now, in this church, if it wasn't for the activation of people who were in the pews to lead the ministries of this church, friends, we would not be able to do the things we do. When you look at pastors and you look at priests and you look at people of the clergy, men of the cloth who lead the church, their job is to help lead with vision and to teach God's word. But their job as elders of the church is to equip the people to do the work of ministry. And here you see that they said, Ezra, bring it out. Bring us the word. And as tempting as it is for pastors to want to tickle the ears of God's people, which is what Paul admonished Timothy not to do, is so easy. In the depth of the longing of your heart, do you know really what you need? You need elders and a pastor to preach God's word. And you need us to call you back to faith and repentance. And you need us not to tickle your ears with funny stories, but to show you the beauty of Christ. Week after week after week, and to allow him, sometimes funny stories help, but to allow the gospel to be the thing that shapes you and molds you. And so first, you see in verse 1, you see an activated laity and clergy. One commentator says, redemption in ancient Israel comes under the direction of leaders whom God raised up in his sovereign mercy in response to the deep longing and intercession of the laity, of the people, generated under the pressure of their suffering. Number two, what mark do you see? Look at verses two and three of chapter eight. Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. Children, it may think, oh my gosh, he read all day? Yes. They were so thirsty. They didn't have the distractions that we have in the modern world. They came before Ezra who read God's revealed word, the family history back to them, and they were captivated by it. So the second mark of renewal in any community is not just an activated laity and clergy, but it is a rediscovery of Scripture. Men and women, no longer were the women separated from the men by the temple courts, but they were together listening with one voice, just like you're in this room listening to God's word. And they gave attention to it. They had their minds fixed and focused on it. Now, I'm just going to go around the wheel because I know your engineers are excited about it. Number three, prioritization of, number three, look at verse three. All the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Where were they? They were in corporate worship. There was a prioritization of corporate worship. 
an activated laity and clergy, a rediscovery of scripture, and there was a prioritization of corporate worship. Now, this is where the sermon kind of gets weird because I'm kind of preaching to the choir because you're in corporate worship. But it's interesting, isn't it, when we read statistics about the average churchgoer today attends church, how often? They say once a month. And so, which is good news for me because that means I can only, I don't have to prepare one-fourth of the sermons I do. No, we're going to continue week after week after week. And I just want you to know that it is the regular rhythm and pattern, even when you don't feel like it, to keep coming back to worship. Keep coming back. And you notice this week that our chairs are a little more narrow and there's bleachers that are pulled out. Why? Because we're preparing for Christmas and we'll soon prepare for Easter. And there's room in this place for your neighbors and for your friends. Because 40 million people, as I've mentioned before, have stopped going to church in the past 25 years. And a majority of those have come since COVID. And studies show that as many as 30 million people will come back to church because they are just burned out and burned over by all the political rhetoric and they're longing for something more. And all it takes is a nudge from a neighbor or from a family member to say, hey, come sit with us. And so a reprioritization of worship is in fact a mark of corporate renewal. And are you praying for that? Would you pray for that? Would you join me and the elders in praying for that? Not just for our church, but so that when only 15% of greater Tulsa metro area is actually in a church building on Sunday morning worshiping. That's shocking, isn't it, for a place like Tulsa? It's only 15%, the best estimates suggest. What would it be like if it became 25, 50%? How amazing would that be when people are beginning to come back to the Lord? So there's a activated laity and clergy. There is a rediscovery of Scripture. There is a reprioritization of Scripture. I mean, of, of, of corporate worship. And then number four, there is clear preaching of God's word. Look, the people stayed in the place where they were. They didn't move. This is like the, the elders came around them and they, they helped them understand God's word. And it says in verse eight that they read from the book of the law clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood its reading. And today, we still exist in a time when there is biblical illiteracy all over the place. In fact, when, when people trained to be elders early on in this church, when, I, when, I, when we were first getting off the ground, I remember I gave a, I gave a group of men um, a, a test, as it were, to say, fill these out. Name the 12 disciples. Put the Ten Commandments in order. Uh, what are the, like, can you tell me all 66 books of the Bible? Like, I'm not going to ask you to do that because I know how nervous that just made you feel. And you're the one who's in worship. And so an opportunity we have is to come not just at 10, but to come at 9, to continue to learn and grow and understand God's Word, to come sit under the teaching of the elders as they go in depth on certain topics and discussions about how God's Word is put together and what His Word means. We need to be people who find ourselves activated and strengthened because there's clear teaching and clear preaching. That's number four. Number five is that strength for change is motivated by deep joy. By deep joy. 
Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught all the people, they said, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the word of the law. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat of the land, and then down on it says, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. In worship every week, there's a time when we're grieved over our sin. We pause and we confess our sin corporately. And then I always say, raise your eyes to heaven. Perk up. Look up. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength, that he has forgiven you in Christ for all those who bring their sin to the Lord. You're forgiven by faith. You're adopted as his own by faith. Like You're his. And so joy, when you come to the table in a few minutes, it should be marked by joy. You're not coming to remove shame. The shame has been removed on the cross. You're coming with joy. And so we sing in our hearts as we come to the Lord's table because it is a foreshadowing of the banquet table of the Lamb, which he longs to share with you. Sixth, verses 13 to 18 of chapter 8. There is integration of the word into their lives. The seventh month of the year was the year when they celebrated all of the Levitical feasts. And the Feast of Tabernacles began on the first day. And they integrated the the word into their lives. God commanded them to celebrate certain uh, practices, and they began again to do that. And he has to get specific. They say, bring the olive and the wild olive and the myrtle. They have to, like, re-explain to them how they bring these leafy plants because they had forgotten. They hadn't done it in generations upon generations. But they begin to integrate God's word and his promise in the liturgies of their life, and they begin to find renewal. Now, seventh, there was corporate prayer with confession of sin, which I just read in chapter 9. They sat with sackcloth and earth on their heads, and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They didn't just confess their own sins, by the way. They also confessed the iniquities of their fathers. Because while they didn't personally commit those sins, they recognized themselves as part of a people. And so their confession was long and sweet. It started out personal. Father, forgive me for how I have not treated my wife well. And then perhaps it burst beyond, Lord, forgive me for not fighting against the generational tendencies of my family toward oppressing people not of my kin. Forgive us for our idolatry that our fathers committed in Exodus 32. Father, forgive us for the ways that we have walked from you as a people. And what would it be like if we as a church began to help people come back into God's covenant community by saying, you know what, evangelicals have not always done it well. Father, would you forgive us of thinking that we're any better than the mistakes of our past? Would you, Father, would you forgive us of being so arrogant as to think that we won't repeat the sins of our fathers? Father, would you forgive us for not recognizing some of the blind spots that we ourselves have even as we stand on the shoulders of other brothers and sisters who also demonstrated profound blind spots that we now in this part of history see so clearly when they did not. That's what it means to be part of a community that's beginning to be corporately renewed. There's an activated laity and clergy. There's a rediscovery of Scripture. There's a prioritization of corporate worship. There's clear preaching of God's Word. There's integration of God's Word into our lives. There is 
joy, strength for change motivated by, motivated by deep joy, and there's corporate prayer with confession of sin. Now, before I get to the last one, let me, let me just say one more thing about prayer. The strength of this church is not in the beauty of its future building. It's not in the beauty of the way we do worship. It's not in how good the songs are. The strength of this church is, it, is in the faithfulness of the prayers of the people in the church. That is the engine that runs this thing. When Spurgeon one time was taking somebody on a tour of the Brooklyn Tabernacle many, many years ago, there was a room that had the light on and the door was shut, and somebody said, what's in that room? And he says, oh, that's the engine of the church. Because that's where people gather an hour before to an hour after the sermon, and they pray for the people. Corporate prayer is the strength of a church. May it be our vital breath as the Puritans used to say. And lastly, there's covenant recommitment. There's corporate covenant recommitment. And all of chapter 9, it's a display of this covenant corporate commitment. And I would commend to you to read Ezra 9 and 10 this week, and then keep going. Read all the way to the end of Nehemiah as we look at it next week. Because their covenant commitment is marked by... three things. Number one, it's marked by our retelling of their story. When Ezra read God's word and the Levites began to pray, this is the story that they read, and I'm going to read the whole thing for you, and I just want you to take it in. You are the God of lo- alone. You made heaven and earth with all their hosts and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. The hosts of heaven worship you. You, Lord, the God who chose Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, you gave him the name Abraham, and you found his heart faithful before you, and you made him with him the covenant to give to his offspring in the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, and the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. This is your family history, O church. And you, Lord, saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Scholars say this is the most beautiful retelling of the story of Scripture in the whole of the Bible. Do you hear it? Have ears attentive to it. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as stone in mighty waters. And by a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light the way for them in the way that they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them the right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you, you and your faithfulness made known to them your holy Sabbath and commandment and commanded them the commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. And you, O Lord, gave them bread from heaven and from their hunger, and you brought water for them out of the rock for their third. Have you forgotten that God brought water out of a rock to sustain your forefathers? And you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. This is your history, Trinity. 
But they and their fathers acted presumptuously, and they stiffened their necks, and they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. This is your history. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought us out of Egypt. And they committed great blasphemies. You, Lord, in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. God created out of nothing food for them to live on. This is your story. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked for nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them the kingdoms and the peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, the king of Bashan. And you multiplied their children as stars of heaven, and you brought them out into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. Did you know this about your family? So the descendants went and they took possession of the land, and you subdued them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you gave them into their hand with their kings and the people of their land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards and olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance. And so they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness nevertheless. What's the pattern of renewal? Mm. Nevertheless, despite his great goodness, they were disobedient. And they rebelled against you, and they cast your law behind their back, and they killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors, judges who saved them from the hands of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, like, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder, and they stiffened their necks, and they would not obey. Many years you bore with them, and you warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. This is your family history. Do you own it? Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us. 
upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments or your warnings that you've given them, even in their own kingdom. And amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. And behold, we are slaves. That is, that they were still occupied by the Assyrian regime. And they, the Assyrians, rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. But we are in great distress. Because of all this, because of the retelling of this great story, we make a firm recommitment to the covenant promises. Friends, this is your family history. It's not some words that live in a book on your shelf, perhaps we haven't read in a while. This is your family history. Have you read it? The Sunset Limited is the longest active train that runs across this country. It runs from New Orleans to Los Angeles. And there is a movie made several years ago called The Sunset Limited. It's about a story of a professor who had read all the books, knew all the stuff of life, and he goes to where The Sunset Limited runs 80 miles through his town, and he's going to step in front of it. And a man named, uh, his name is Mr. Black, he saves this character played by Tommy Lee Jones, Morgan Freeman, saves him. And it's, or Samuel L. Jackson, rather, and he goes into uh, this uh, apartment, and they, for an hour, talk about what it means to have read all the books in the world, but never know the truth. And Samuel L. Jackson says, Professor, I know you've read all these great books, War and Peace, and Gibbon's Fall and Rise of the Roman Empire, but I want to tell you, have you ever read this one? Trinity, do you know your family history, and do you own it? You can't see it now. But do you know that you worship together with saints around the world who also, we tell this story week after week and year after year to their children? And you know it's through these eight cycles of renewal, the laity and clergy being activated, a rediscovery of scripture, a prioritization of corporate worship, the clear preaching of God's word, strength to change motivated by joy, not shame or guilt, the integration of God's word into our lives, corporate prayer for renewal and confession of sin, and corporate covenant recommitment. Do you know that scholars say that in this country, that pattern has manifested itself six times? Did you know that? Scholars talk about the six movements of renewal, and if you look at other examples that connect us to this pattern, you see the first great awakening, Number one, the second great awakening. Number two, the era of Charles Finney in the mid-19th century. Number three, the layman's prayer revival of 1858. Number four, number five was the era of the great evangelists like D.L. Moody at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries. And then six, there's the sixth one. And many of us have been alive to see him preach, and some of us have even gone to his crusades. Who would that be? Billy Graham. Scholars say this pattern of renewal has shown itself in this country six times, and wouldn't it be wonderful if we can say there's a seventh?
Richard Lovelace refers to this dynamic as a generation gap. He says there's an appearance of a new generation, and then there is a popular apostasy and enculturation, and then there's national affliction. And then after that national affliction, there becomes, again, a popular people-driven repentance complemented by prayer, that's agonizing prayer, and there's a raising up of new leaders, and there is restoration. This is our story. You see it all throughout Scripture. You saw it with Moses. You see it in the period of the judges with Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah and Gideon and Abimelech and Tola and Jair and Jephthah and Isban and Elon and Abdon. And finally, in Samson, you see that renewal continue into the kings. And then you see the complete decline when the kingdom splits. In the northern kingdom, there are no good kings to lead it. But in the southern kingdom, there's decline under Jehoram and Ahaz and Manasseh and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. And then again, there's renewal under Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah and priests like Jehoiada. Like This is your history of this cyclical act of renewal. And in, in one of these historical moments in the Layman's Prayer Revival of 1857 and 1858, it didn't start out with some program to bring renewal. It started out with a businessman in New York City inviting a friend of his who led the local YMCA to host a prayer meeting in the business district of New York. And the first time they met in September of 1858, there were six people that showed up. Didn't sound like much. And the next week, next week, at the end of September, 20 people showed up. The first week of October, 40 people showed up. And by January, in New York City, there were thousands of people who were gathering every day in the business district to pray. And that spread to Philadelphia. And that spread to Boston. And soon, the whole eastern seaboard had people gathering together between September and it had reached its height in March. So that the New York Times says this about what happened in 1857. Although the political and economic life of the nation experienced prosperity in the decades before and church attendance were in sharp decline, people were mistrustful of the behavior of preachers and additions to the churches scarcely equaled the losses sustained by death, removal, and discipline and a widespread indifference to religion became prevalent. It is often not the case that the daily press, which is what they called the New York Times back then, feels called upon to chronicle the spiritual movement of the public mind. But the great wave of religious excitement which is now sweeping over the nation is one of the most remarkable movements we have seen since the Reformation. In this city, we have beheld a sight which not the most enthusiastic fanatics for church observances could have ever hoped to look upon. This is in the secular New York Times. We have seen in a business quarter of the city in the busiest hour assemblies of merchants, clerks, and working men to the number of some 5,000 gathered daily, day after day, for simple, solemn worship. Similar assemblies we find in other portions of the city and a theater is turned into a chapel, and churches of all sects are opened and crowded day and night. Friends, these cycles of renewal can break forth at this church too. And it doesn't start in the eastern seaboard. It starts in places like your living room with your family, 
It starts with reading Nehemiah to your family, talking about the sermon together. It talks about taking this wheel of renewal and thinking about it again over the course of the week. Where do you find yourself in it? It says, Lord, I I haven't rediscovered Scripture. I don't really long to read it. Lord, would you help me see it? And maybe it means that you start listening to it on audio. Maybe it means that you start meditating in it on a way that helps begin to set your heart aflame for the great story that is your story. This is your family story, friends. May we own it. And may we own it in little ways. Dan and Jill help their two young sons, age five and seven, with scripture memorization, and they teach them simple catechisms. Maybe that's the way that we do it. Carrie and two other Christian friends are moms, and they have young kids. They decide to start a daytime moms group, and they invite non-Christian friends. And so for about a year, this group grows until pretty soon these moms begin to talk about the gospel out in the open with their non-Christian friends and women begin to come to church and to their Bible studies and they begin to ask more and more questions even through the hurt and trauma they've experienced in previous church experiences. These are real things. Sally gets to know a young woman named Clara at church and Clara confides that she and her husband are having marriage problems and that he isn't willing to go to a counselor and Sally and her husband Jeff invite Clara and Sam over for a meal and they begin to develop a deep relationship. Listen, it's through a million little decisions that you make. This is organic and relational and simple. It is simple, but it is not easy. But God is calling us to begin the movement of renewal in this church. Do not wait for your elders to do it. You do it. Take regular walks in your neighborhood to meet others. If you have children, get involved in their schools. Find ways to get to know other people in your neighborhood through your HOA. Play organized sports in the city. Volunteer alongside neighbors and with nonprofits. Expose yourself to opportunities. And also recognize that as we demonstrate works of renewal, generations are going to do it differently. Listen to what one author has written. When older Americans begin to upbraid the younger generation for their laziness and their disorder and their licentiousness, they find themselves confronted by a younger generation who cry out like the prophets of Gomorrah at their subservience to their identity and their possessions. When the older brothers commend the so-called Protestant work ethic, the younger people advise detachment from wealth and paying attention to the oppressed, to be open to beauty and the cultivation of, of, of diversity. The older say, perhaps the younger have a false ethic of love, but the younger says to the older, perhaps you have a false ethic, false ethic of righteousness. Sounds like something that we could be said today, doesn't it? And yet that was written by one talking about the greatest generation, talking about boomers. The generation gap continues even today as we look at different generations and we think, oh, well, they need to get with it. And in our church, may the generations come together to live out this exercise of corporate renewal. And so finally, to close, you don't just simply have these things to live by corporate renewal and then go do them. 
You have all you need for renewal, which is the point of the sermon. Right now, you have all you need for renewal. Why? Because he has you. And you are Christ's. And he has given you his spirit to do those hard things, like obey him when it's hard, like find your identity in him again when it's hard. Because Jesus, the true priest, became human to enter into the laity of humanity to activate our hearts. Jesus helps us rediscover scripture by becoming the living word of God who dwelt in our midst. Jesus sends us out by his spirit to gather all those who are his to come to him for rest in the reprioritization of corporate worship. Jesus explains the gospel and all of scripture on the road to Emmaus so that we might see ourselves as part of a far greater story, standing on the shoulders of giants, and we come again to worship to retell that story and come to his table with joy. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you so that you can lay down your shame at the foot of the cross and you can pick up his joy because he says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ. Amen? Jesus says that he is the ultimate integrator. He is God and man, two natures, not separated nor commingled. Jesus is the one who prayed for you in John 17 in the high priestly prayer that you might be reconciled to God and to one another. And Jesus invites you to covenant recommitment through his table where his body and his blood was poured out for the remission of your sins in the new covenant. So as you come to the table this morning, would you come asking the Lord to begin the process of renewal through these eight steps that you see in the book of Nehemiah? And would you pray that the Lord would allow it to burst forth, not just individualistically, but into us as a church, as a corporate community, as we welcome more and as we point more and more into the finished work of Jesus by our own example of faith and repentance together. May the Lord bless the reading of his word that we may give attention to it. For we have all we need for renewal because he has us and we are his.